Hello. Uh, who are you? Hi there. My name is Twyla Gymnasium. I'm a, an executive with Disney, and we happen to be here in your neighborhood today helping some of the people who haven't reserved tickets to see the new Star Wars movie at Christmas. It looks like you haven't done anything about that yet. Yeah, well, I'm not even sure I'm going to see it. I didn't like the last three. <laughs> a good one. Uh, you really got me there. Uh, it looks like I can, um, let's see, I can slot you in for January 17th at 2.30 p.m. What size popcorn do you want? Just a, a little hint. Get the medium, even if you take half of it home and give it to the Blue Jays. Wait a second. I don't have to see it, right? I mean, it's totally voluntary whether I see that movie. <laughs> oh, God, you were such a riot. Oh, you should have your own HBO special. For real, are you sure you're not Amy Schumer? No, you're totally required to go see it. I can have you arrested. Uh, how can that be? This is America. You can't make me see a movie. As a matter of fact, our lobbyists got it rammed into the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership legislation. It's in the section about trade incentives for sub-Saharan Africa because we shoot our desert scenes in Tunisia. Tunisia isn't considered sub-Sahara. Look, geography boy, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can either catch the excitement and rediscover the child inside you, or I can slap you in a cell and lose the paperwork. What's it going to be, you un-American, cream-puff, wise-ass college boy? I would definitely rot in confinement rather than watch Jar Jar Binks again. He's not in this one. Sign here. I already swiped your credit card. Great, and here's an R2-D2 can cooler. They're free. We made way too many. Hey... May the force be with you. I have a whole new sense of what you mean by force. <laughs> funny. Funny. Such a comedian. The rest of you listen to the nose talk about trailers and takedowns. And now he plays the black Princess Leia, Colin McEnroe. You know, Star Wars has gotten very, very complicated. <laughs> it's not even out yet. It's causing all kinds of trouble. And as you just heard, uh, you're also not free not to go see it. Um, so, and we're, I think we are breaking that story. I don't think anybody has, uh, has figured that out until now. So let me tell you who's here. We're going to be talking about, um, well, first of all, let me t tell you a little bit about the topics. We are going to talk about, we're going to use the Star Wars trailer, which is, I think, one minute and 51 seconds long, but somehow or other is being treated as though it were a full-blown movie <laughs> uh, and is being dissected in all kinds of different ways and subjected to all kinds of both paranoid and real thinking. Uh, we're going to use that also as a way of talking about sort of the compression uh, we seem to be directing right now at culture. It's like, you know, a tweet is as good as a book and a trailer is as good as a movie. Um, so we'll try to talk about all of that here in the first segment. In the second segment, uh, a piece by Catherine Schultz in The New Yorker about uh, Henry David Thoreau. We're going to not, not talk so much about that, but about the culture of takedowns. This is sort of a ninja-style literary takedown, uh, and we wonder if we're becoming overfond of them or whether maybe, maybe we just need them, like the controlled burn uh, that's used to stimulate growth. Maybe we need to burn down some of our idols uh, now and again. Uh, and towards the end, if we have time, uh, apropos of the new movie Bridge of Spies, I'm going to ask the panelists uh, uh, to pick either the best or their favorite Spielberg movie from the 29 he's done so far. I mean, not that they've seen all 29. They might have skipped Hook, and they might have been well advised to do so. Um, all right, so let me tell you who's here. Uh, first of all, uh, comedian, actress, 
Lager, Dan's Impresario, several other things as well, Carolyn Payne, uh, and The Force. Talk about The Force. The Force behind Trinity Cine Studio, James Hanley, uh, and in an incredibly uh, brave and last-minute appearance, uh, Luis Figueroa is supposed to be on the panel today. Instead, another Trinity professor, Irene Vafoulis, is up off the bench. Luis is under the weather, uh, so she's taking, uh, taking over all of his cases, as they say in cop movies. Uh, all right, so we're going to begin with that uh, trailer. Uh, and so let me just quickly tell you that the trailer, uh, as I say, I think it's, it's certainly under two minutes long. It's the second uh, uh, trailer released so far about this new Christmas uh, Star Wars movie. Um, it is treated – well, I mean, first of all, it has occasioned a, a kind of paranoid fantasy that somehow other people of color are taking over the black uh, – taking over the Star Wars franchise and that people uh, – that white-loving people should boycott Star Wars 7. Uh, also, it has occasioned a pretty interesting piece by Mary Elizabeth Williams in Salon. She begins the most breathtaking moment in the new trailer for Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Um, doesn't involve explosions or lightsabers or ominous references to the dark side. It's an eye-blink long shot of Princess Leia herself, Carrie Fisher, in the embrace of Harrison Ford's Han Solo. It's a moment of weary-looking woman with graying hair and lines on her face, holy science fiction Hollywood somewhere in a galaxy far away. A grown woman has been given permission to look like a grown woman. I want to go to that planet. Well, that's an interesting observation, but, you know, panel, I'd like to begin with the, that, that phrase, the most, most breathtaking moment in the new trailer for Star Wars The Force Awakens. I mean, trailers are theoretically kind of advertisements for things. The idea that they could be broken down into moments that are either breathtaking or not um, is a relatively new one, right? I mean, Carolyn, we've, th- this, this happens all the time now or with some frequency that the, the new Avengers trailer uh, is an event all by itself and, and, and people – Maybe not all people, maybe not people who have active lives, but uh, people will, you know, watch this six or seven times and write little essays about it on the web and tweet about it on social media. Um, Well, exactly. That's the problem. This is the Internet's fault. Like most things, the Internet is to blame for us getting out of control Um, because, I mean, back in the day, like the only time you'd see a trailer is when you went to go see a movie and you saw, and, and half the time you didn't even get there in time or you were still getting popcorn. So it didn't matter. Like, I remember when friends were like, oh my God, we got to get there on time to see the trailers. And I was like, who cares? I'm either going to see the movie or I'm not. But now those people who obsessively needed to get there on time to watch the trailer can now see this trailer online thousands of times, share it on Facebook. So like my news feed the other day was like all, it was like everyone was posting the Star Wars trailer. And it just opens up this floodgate of conversation and where we're just dissecting them and treating them like they're their own thing. Um, so, yes, and I want to say that if you do go to movie theaters and are unwise enough to arrive in time to see all the trailers, uh, <laughs> I last year at a certain point I realized, realized that I'd seen the trailer for Monument Men enough time – to, like if you added it all up, it would be about the running time of Monument Men. And I feel like I should get a free popcorn for that or something. You know? Well, sometimes I, like, I remember I, it was some movie that we were talking about here on the nose. And I said going to that movie. Well, I can't remember which one. I feel like it was her. Hmm. But was I, remember, it, I said that the best part of that movie was the trailers. So, James, <laughs> you know, you, James, you talk a, you're in this business. You talk a lot about this on this show that there's sort of, you know, the game has changed a little bit in terms of how you get people to 
to how, how you break a movie, how you make a movie successful. So much depends on the first weekend. So much depends on a lot of things that probably happen right before the movie opens. It seems like Disney and the Star Wars people, they've completely re-rigged the game here. I mean, one thing that didn't used to happen with trailers is that they didn't end with in the same font of the Star Wars logo. <laughs> Tickets are now available. <laughs> well, that's the thing that, that what is what is happening here is simple marketing and place uh, sort of commanding a place in the market early. And so the earlier you get people going it, going with it, the better you are in terms of things like, for instance, one of the big chess games that takes place when a big new movie is coming out. Everybody wants to open the movie at the same time to get the best play time around the end of the year. And um, one of the big chess games is how many screens will you get in a complex? And so it's all about generating that kind of interest. And I think that the whole connection with social media now is actually part of the marketing uh, process. And it's like, um, I'm, I mean, my feeling about, you know, sort of political stuff is that, that there are these boiler rooms in the desert where the social media is seeded um, uh, so that, uh, first of all, you seed it negatively about something you want to be positive about because you inoculate the market. And then you come out and so you, you, you groom your candidate. Or one of the classic things right now is the laundering of the Koch brothers, you know, the interviews on public radio. And the, now all of a sudden there's a realization that they, 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 they realize that they're cast negatively in many people's minds. Surprise, surprise. So they have to be um, they have to be laundered. And in the case of if you have an enormous investment like the Star Wars franchise, the question is how do you do that? And social media is now fully bought and paid for part of the campaign for a movie. And so trailers have become something of an event in themselves because it commands media attention in addition to the opening of the movie. And in a way, it's a kind of inoculation against any reception the movie might get. And if, for instance, you, you've got to be ready if all of your... Uh, uh, if all of your eggs are, on, uh, are loaded in that basket of the first weekend, you'd better be ready in case somebody says something bad about it. Like, you know, the, the, there's a groundswell of, of resentment about some character, you know, a new Jar Jar Binks or something like that. <laughs> and, and everybody goes crazy about it. So what do you do? You create this sort of inoculation in the market beforehand. You get the attention of the public and then you get any negative uh, issues the, the, the sort of, to me, the, the hyped-up dispute over nothing that is created that gets everybody talking. And then you any, when it actually opens, you've got the field largely uh, to yourself in terms of the number of screens you have and how many people are going to show up on that first weekend, which, of course, is the secret to the success or not of, of the film. Of course, the ideal inoculation would have been to cast the Koch brothers as aging Sith lords. You know? <laughs> I think that's in the next episode. <laughs> it would actually be kind of brilliant. It would. I would, it have would. A, I would have a hard time... Turning thumbs down on that, it would be so brilliant. So, Irene, I don't know. I, I sense that you're ready to say something. I have a, yeah. I want to press you on one part of this, but but say your piece. First. Okay. Well, first of all, I have two things. The inoculate. I don't really quite understand the inoculation because couldn't you just get you know make people not go see it? Well, Why no, are Jim, they guaranteed? James is suggesting that if you if you make Spassky's moves and Fisher's moves, you can you know control the chess game pretty uh, well. So that if you he, uh, he's thinking that I mean I think you're right about. You're right one way or another. Either once this whole 
black, you know, this boycott Star Wars 7 thing, hashtag boycott Star Wars 7 thing started, and what we can go into a little bit of detail about it in just a second, either the people at Disney and Lucasfilms were just high-fiving one another, going, this is great, we couldn't have planned this, or, as James is suggesting, they did plan it to begin a conversation. <laughs> oh, okay, to begin a conversation. Well, I just want to say, you know, sort of a slightly uh, off-angle thing about trailers and how they've changed, you know, so, because... The thing that I can't stand about trailers is that they give you the whole plot of the movie. But now that you're talking about this, I'm, maybe I'm understanding that that's part of why they're doing it. Because you see the whole, you know, it's like there's a problem. I think it used to be that there's a problem and you see the problem in the trailer and then blank. And then you have to go see the movie to find out what happens. Whereas now when you see a trailer, you find out everything that's going to happen. You know that they're going to get together at the end and you know whatever. And so I find that incredibly disappointing as a viewer. So it's like I almost want to leave when I see well, the trailer. From from a commercial point of view, <clears throat> that's not how they think. They're thinking about reassurance. The, I can tell you from running movies all the time is that nowadays many people want to be reassured that they're not wasting their time by coming to a movie. And so they do want to know what's in it. It's a curious paradox. And that you combine that with the fact that more people see movies online, see trailers online in advance than do in the theaters for lots of reasons. Um, but, it, you know, movies uh, were, had trailers originally that were addressed to the audience that was there in the theater sitting, you know, w waiting for a movie to start. And the, the, the style of the trailer was very different. Trailers now are designed to catch attention online and to be sort of to go viral. And so they have a different purpose. Um, but then why would you want to see the movie? Well, that's, I, mean, I, I think that's, well, that's that, that, question is, that question is right on point. But I yeah. feel like... Carolyn, as though the trailer is, I mean, in a way, it is kind of an amuse-bouche. You know, they're, they're sort of giving you a little sort of taste of something. But it's also, there's, it's almost like a multivitamin, too. It's like if you look at that trailer, you think, okay, am I going to have my nostalgia strings plucked? <laughs> oh, yes, there's Harrison Ford. There's Carrie Fisher. Okay, so that's good. Am I going to see something I haven't seen before? Oh, there's the little roly-bolly thing that's like R2-D2 except a lot more disconnected. And Which apparently, is already available for sale at Brookstone, I right. saw. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually does exist, too. It's not a, a CG, that little roll, whatever that thing is called. Patrick will now come charging into the studio <laughs> to tell me that what it's called and that I'm an idiot for not knowing that. You know, and so as you you sort of see, okay, am, to what degree is this going to satisfy my craving for nostalgia? To what degree is it going to satisfy my craving for the new? But it also becomes a little thing that you're ingesting, too. You're not ingesting it simply to prepare yourself for the future movie, but people sort of, they do. They eat it like it's a multivitamin or something. Well, I think that they had a, a, a big task here, specifically with this trailer, to kind of win back over fans. Like, I'm a big fan of, you know, uh, of Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. Star Wars 1, 2, and 3, that was a disaster to me. I mean, Jar Jar Binks and, and everything about it was just awful. So if unless this, you know, this trailer had to exactly do that. It had to pull at those nostalgia strings. Like I had, I wanted, I wanted to see, you know, Han Solo and Chewbacca and, and the Millennium Falcon. Like I wanted that security. And I also did want to see those those new things and, I, I needed to know a lot about this movie before I can trust it and be excited about it. And that's really? how I feel. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have gone? Probably not. I mean, honestly, that's the like what you were saying with trailers nowadays, that they are so comprehensive. They're, you know, 
it's some of them I appreciate that they're comprehensive because then I don't have to see the movie and I still don't have to feel like an idiot in conversation when it comes up. <laughs> but, when <I> you, <laughs> but when you look, when you look yeah. at a deeply commercial trailer like this Star Wars one, remember it, almost the entire trailer is a continuous fade in, fade out like two-second shots yes. with iconic pictures that you know sort of remind you. They're actually not telling the story. Okay. There is, <clears throat> in a way, it's like saying there is no story. What is happening here is a reboot of all the familiar things mm -hmm. that you're expecting from Star Wars, which if you think about it, that's much more valuable to the commercial side of exploitation to do that, to get people to be curious about it rather than to say, well, here's this story that we're telling and actually try and get it across. I mean, if you think about the startling things is that, um, you know, that, that, that you've got these familiar figures and also unfamiliar figures and, 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 and seemingly significant black people in, in Star Wars and not really saying what's going on there, which, of course, creates a, a buzz on the Internet in, in lots of different ways. And that is something that is it, it, it's really that's what I mean about the new kind of trailer, really. Okay, that yeah, I like that. I mean, like that. Let me just say a couple of things really quickly. First of all, if you'd like to join this conversation, uh, you could call 860-275-7266. Do not call for the purpose of telling me what the little rolly thing is. It's called BB-8. <laughs> I've already been told that. 860-275-7266. You can also tweet us, probably more efficaciously. You can tweet us at WNPR uh, Colin. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, Carolyn because she is younger than most of us, is in fact speaking I, – I, I don't know if you've encountered this in your son, but my son said much the same thing. First of all, he didn't imprint on the original Star Wars quite the same way some of us did because, I mean, it was kind of introduced to him by his parents. But he liked it. He loved it. He loved those first three movies. And then he felt as though the covenant was utterly broken by these crappy three movies. <laughs> and I think people who are millennials, people who are, you know, grouped around that kind of generation, millennials and maybe a little bit older, they the brand loyalty is, is much more fungible, you know, and situational. It's like, show me something right now. Uh, I didn't like the last thing you showed me. I want a new <laughs> iPhone now. I've already had this one. Okay, now I'm being unfair to millennials. But, um, but so there's a little bit of that too. Like, win me back, you know, get me back on your side. But what I wanted to ask you about was, and if I'd been feeling more punitive towards the panel, I would have made them read this, uh, made you all read this essay about whether the article, the idea of the article, I'm not the definite or indefinite article, but like a magazine article, whether that's going to continue to be the standard unit for conveying journalistic information for – like will the New York Times do articles mainly say 10 years from now? And in a way, what this, uh, this essay was making the argument that people consume information in all kinds of different sizes, you know, and in all kinds of – I mean a tweet is a piece of information. Some people – sometimes the tweet is enough or five tweets <laughs> is enough to round out somebody's suspicion anyway that they understand what's going on, um, that, you know, the standard size meals that we've been consuming for a long time are now in play a lot more. And because you teach in the humanities, I'm wondering if you might even be noticing that in your students. Like, do I have to read a whole novel? Why would I have to read a whole novel? Well, yeah, I mean, I, that's exactly what I was thinking of when James was talking about the trailer, you know, like you, that, that the students will say that even about an article, yeah, an essay that they're reading. Like, well, 
if I already know the plot, why should I bother? You know, the guy is just repeating himself all the way through. And, you know, why, why should I bother? And then, as Carolyn said, you know, I can talk intelligently about it if you just give me the synopsis, if you just give me the trailer. And um, that's pretty disturbing as somebody who teaches for somebody who teaches essay writing. You know, sometimes I do feel like, well, are anyone is anyone going to be reading essays in 20 years, you know, 30 years, well, 10 years? Yeah, and there's another consequence to that, isn't there? That that, that if you uh, if if people are feeling that they've absorbed what they need to from a series of tweets or from a a, a, a small synopsis, then it means that the ideas can be manipulated very easily. That means that you, could, you that not having read the substance of what somebody's philosophy is or writing is. I know. So, and, and actually, I heard myself say to you, like, well, if you've seen the trailer, why should you see the movie? And then I thought, wait a minute, that's against my perspective. It turns out God isn't the, in the details. Yeah, yeah. yeah, because, and that's the thing, like, with, a, with an essay, you know, what students sort of interpret as, oh, he's just repeating himself, is the development of the nuances of an idea, which happens Absolutely. in a movie, too, of course. Yeah. At least it should. And so we're, if we're losing that, we're in trouble. We are in trouble, and that's where we're at. That's why you have people, you know, jumping to these crazy conclusions online and coming up with their own, you know, right. hypothesis because they, you know, they're they're like me. They're like, oh, I saw the trailer. Now I'm going right. to talk about this yeah, in depth. And let me just sort <laughs> of put, pre- let's just talk about what that particular one crazy conclusion. So, um, <laughs> I, you know, I've watched the trailer, and yes, I, well, I watched it. I, I think maybe I watched it twice, but even watching it once, I could tell one thing that's apparently going to happen. Uh, or maybe I had to combine the first and second trailer, that there was going to be a black stormtrooper played by uh, John Boyega, who I think, who's an attack the block, right? Yes. That's a great movie. <laughs> uh, so uh, John, so he, he's a, a black stormtrooper. Yes. <laughs> he's going to join the other side. He's going to become a rebel. And it kind of looks like he might find out that he's a Jedi you know, because there's a, he's like about to have a lightsaber duel at the end with some with one of the Koch brothers. I yeah, think, and he has know. a lightsaber on the poster. Right. So, uh, you know, we're to conclude that he is a Jedi. And but so I was confused why everyone was so alarmed that there was a black stormtrooper. Storm well, ev- correct me right. if yeah. I was if I'm wrong here. I've seen those original movies like probably my brother was like obsessed as a child. Like he went to Star Wars conventions. He was just we had like every toy. I don't think the stormtroopers ever took off their helmets. No, well, that so we was, didn't know yeah. what was under there. That was one, right? Of the, <laughs> like, it, right. could it? You know, it could be. It could have been the four tops in there. We right, don't know. exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't know why that seemed. I was more like, oh my gosh, they're human under there. Yeah. That somehow hadn't occurred. I assumed that they were all just kind of like robots. Well, that, <laughs> was, one of, that was one of the curious things about having a villain, such a fully developed villain as Darth Vader, and uh, that it was James Earl Jones with that incredibly, you know, distinctive voice, and he had a helmet on, you know, and so he was like concealed so you could pretend he wasn't black kind of thing. It was like a curious sort of cultural moment that uh, not many people talked about at the time, but then you look at films and the development of films later on and culturally how this is perceived it's really interesting how those are part of they're part of the development of people's ideas about um, what, who's a villain and who's not and who these characters really are. Um, and I think one of the fascinating things about the Star Wars thing is that um, it, it, when it started out, it had a kind of transgressive sort of different sort of exciting thing. I remember going down to New York City to see the premiere and, and, and being very excited just by the look of it, you know, and it was something really different. But something happens in the process of becoming a huge commercial franchise, obviously, 
And it has to be sold in a different way. And where in generations, they're clearly with the trailer, they're trying to appeal to a new generation, yet at the same time, give little flashes to bring in the old fans. Well, yeah. So speaking of the flashes, I just love how Colin said, well, I think I know what's really really going to be. And yeah. then Carolyn, too. You know, exactly. so there's something about it's like a different kind of reading. Yeah, you know, right. yeah. not, you don't need the exposition because you can you, you've learned to sort of, you know, deduce from the flash you know, a whole yeah. all the nuances, maybe. You know, so. but, but our neurology has changed yeah. so that we can do this. Hey, I think we need to uh, switch gears here. And I also do want to say, if you feel like you just need so much more uh, Star Wars, I have to tell you that we are going to two weeks from today. We're going to do a special Star Wars news with a whole bunch of people who are coming into the Mark Twain house. Uh, plus, I think Timothy Zahn, who was like the Star Wars guy. De tutti Star Wars guys, uh, and so we're all very excited. I mean, various people are in various stages of excitement about that. But anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back with takedowns and maybe a little time for Mr. Spielberg too. Back uh, to the nose, and welcome back to Irene Papoulis uh, and James Hanley and Carolyn Payne. Um, so one of the things that I do to prepare for this particular show is I listen to this late culture gab fest from which I've stolen so many ideas that my picture is probably up in their kitchen or something. I'm like the guy who comes in and jumps the check every time. So uh, I was listening, listening to them discuss uh, an essay that's much discussed. It's um, uh, This Week in the New Yorker. It's by Carolyn Schul- Catherine Schultz, the great um, uh, literary critic and kind of all-purpose critic. Um, and kind of a specialist in the takedown, too, a little bit. It's called Pond Scum. <laughs> it's, it is a complete, utter, ruthless takedown of Henry David Thoreau. And so I, I didn't really want to kick over the same traces as, um, uh, as Lake Culture Gabfest. But one of their panelists, Stephen Metcalf, said a really interesting thing, as he often does. He said that you, know, you really have to question an essay which begins with, as its premise, the total disregard of any possible possible positive feature that, that might have uh, attached itself to, to whatever your subject is. In other words, you know, with Thoreau, I mean, in, in, uh, certainly a, a number of very damning points are made about him in this essay, and, and we'll probably mention a few of them. But, you know, he also is a direct inspiration for Gandhi, for Martin Luther King. These are, you know, these gigantic figures took tremendous sustenance from what he had to say. So how do you kick this guy quite so completely to the curb? You know, well, you have to begin by deciding that's what you're going to do. Uh, and, and and he wondered about that. And I got me wondering too because I kind of like these. I have to say I, I like these when they're well done. Um, it, it, it's a little subgenre all by itself and I think there's more and more of them today. I, I dug up a Laura Miller essay from uh, 2013 where she talked about the self-same Catherine Schultz uh, taking down the great Gatsby, talk about a beloved you know, toppling a statue. Uh, Christian Lorenzen, who's a little bit of a specialist in this too, uh, writing a salvo against Alice Munro in the London Review of Books and Joseph Epstein, also very good at these things uh, in the, in, and at this particular time he had written in the Atlantic Monthly, is Franz Kafka overrated? Um, so, no. <laughs> we'll see, there we go. So, um, and, but we like these things, and certainly in 2012, the most circulated restaurant review was the famous Pete Wells uh, takedown uh, of Guy Fieri's New York, uh, Times Square eatery. It which consists entirely of a series of questions addressed to apostrophically to Guy Fieri. Uh, were you struck by how very far the how, far, how, how very far from awesome the 
awesome pretzel chicken tenders are. If you hadn't come up with the recipe yourself, would you ever guess that the shiny tissue of breading that exudes grease onto the plate contains either pretzels or smoked almonds? Did you discern any buttermilk or brine in the white meat, or did you think it tasted like chewy air? Why is one of the few things on your menu that can be eaten without fear or regret a lunch-only sandwich of chopped soy-glazed pork with coleslaw and cucumbers called a rosemary roasted pork banh mi when it resembles that item about as much as you resemble Emily Dickinson. So that that particular review sent all over the internet was the one restaurant review everybody in America read that year. So, um, uh, well, Carolyn, I think I'll begin with you because I, I, I might try to foist something else off on your generation, your beleaguered <laughs> generation. I don't know. I sense people. There's a real there's a market for this. I mean, maybe there's always been a market, but I feel like there's a market for the brute force takedown. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's what Yelp is, right? <laughs> Yelp is just a uh, a way that everyone can be a New York Times food critic in their own in their own imagination and take down. I mean, if you've read Yelp reviews, like that makes that New York Times article look like it's it's you know praising Guy Fieri's <laughs> restaurant because when you read a Yelp review, they are so hilarious in in just how harsh they are, and that's that's like. It almost seems like the goal that people set out, they want to hate it. They want to be able to, like, go in and just tear things down because it's kind of it, – it's more fun or it, it goes viral more or it just gives you an outlet to express your rage. I don't know. But I prefer hating on something usually to liking it. Well, but James, <laughs> I mean, you know, one of the arguments that I think Laura Miller makes is, you know, the, the bigger the titan that you're going to take down, the better you have to be, that it takes a George Bernard Shaw to take down Shakespeare uh, – which he actually did. Uh, I can even read from that particular essay uh, if anybody wants. But and I, I, I don't know whether it's, this speaks ill of me, but for me, there's a nearly erotic thrill from seeing somebody that I worship just cut off at the knees in a really interesting way. It's why I often enjoyed the work of Christopher Hitchens. You know, he often would take something that, that mm. I took for granted as good and rip it apart. In such a brutal and interesting way that that I just felt, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, there was something enjoyable about it. I, I agree. I mean, I, I think that, that a well-written and well, you know, somebody coming from an intelligent point of view who analyzes something against the grain and especially goes after something that has been extravagantly praised or more likely is a kind of like a, an icon that, uh, you know, some literary piece that nobody really reads, that, that, that people are forced to read in high school, perhaps. Uh, Thoreau, I think, is a good example. I mean, the, the, Thoreau is an interesting character, certainly, and worthy of lots of uh, comment and, and discussion. But the problem is that many, many of these people become, for one work or, an, or sometimes a whole lifetime's work, they become sort of iconic in a way that uh, it's the idea of what they do rather than an analysis of who they are. And of course, an analysis of the work, I, I think that the criticism, if it is really well taken in the sense of somebody who's really read the work or somebody who's actually making a comment that actually uh, you know, has a has a literary value in itself. And even when you're looking at these things like you have to look at what the provenance is. I mean, for a restaurant review, for example, I mean, if you go all the way to Yelp, uh, it, a restaurant review there is people sort of having their moment in the in, in, in the sun kind of thing to make sharp comments. They've read these sharp reviews and food is something instantaneous that the Internet is made for, you know, because you have an instant reaction to something that you paid for and ate and you didn't like or and, and it's sort of almost 
more entertaining to to be uh, attacking something like that. But when you when you get to things like um, like iconic literature, for example, I think that um, the Schultz uh, uh, dissection of Thoreau is really interesting, given that we're surrounded by manipulated public images of people who have some really provocative reviews that are not necessarily particularly healthy. I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like Ayn Rand, for example, um, that, that people hear about Ayn Rand as a, 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 it, it, descriptively, but they never read it. Mm-hmm. And how many people really read these works and understand that some of them, some of the ideas can be really provocative, but on the other hand, they can sometimes be really toxic. And uh, somebody like Thoreau is a really complicated person that I think Schultz brought that out. And I think that that's something that is really important to be doing, literary criticism. It's kind of like I feel that that, that, that the news media generally, uh, journalists who could comment, you know, somebody like an I.F. Stone or something that we don't have anymore, somebody who takes apart the imagery that is presented by orthodoxy and iconography of somebody who's considered to be the best and, and, and taking on Shakespeare, for example. That's an f- incredibly interesting thing to me to, to actually look at what Shakespeare wrote about and what his own interests were, what was happening at the time. You know, that, that this gives you a sense of the, of, of the piece that, gives, that is enlightening and you can see that this is a flawed person perhaps. Well, well, the yeah. takedown of Thoreau in the, in this article is so much about who he was as a person, which obviously greatly reflected his works. Yeah. And, you know, Thoreau to me is like, it's like when you run into someone at Whole Foods and accidentally get into, <laughs> trapped in a conversation. It turns out they're one of those like self-righteous raw vegans who like eat nothing and do nothing. And, you know, all of a sudden you're like listening to their, their whole, you know, religious experience with living this way. I'm feeling embarrassed with what's in your heart. Right, yeah. Actually, Irene, before you go, let me give them a a taste uh, a little bit of what uh, Schultz actually says. Uh, Nor was he, Thoreau, interested in subjecting his claims to logical scrutiny, and that is the second problem with basing one's beliefs on personal intuition and direct revelation. It justifies the substitution of anecdote and authority for evidence and reason. The result in Walden is an unnavigable thicket of contradiction and caprice. At one moment Thoreau fulminates against the railroad, that devilish iron horse whose ear-rending neigh is heard throughout the town. In the next, he claims that he is refreshed and expanded when the freight train rattles past me. Uh, At one moment, he argues that earlier civilizations are worthless. In the next, he combines a kids-today crankiness with nostalgia for the imagined superiority of the past. Quote, husbandry was once a sacred art, but it is pursued with irreverent haste and heedlessness by it. And yes, she also does explode certain conventions of Walden Pond, which she says in 1845 was scarcely more off the grid relative to contemporaneous society than Prospect Park is today. The commuter train to Boston ran along its southwest side in summer. The place swarmed with picnickers and swimmers, while in winter it was frequented by ice cutters and skeeters. Thoreau could stroll from his cabin to his family home in Concord in 20 minutes, about as long as it takes to walk the 15 blocks from Carnegie Hall to Grand Central Terminal. So, um, I have a couple of thoughts about this. One of them is, like, I read Ayn Rand in high school where my critical faculties were pretty much non-existent. And I think one of the things that we do is we some of these canonical works, we read them early. We're like baby ducks. We imprint on them. And, and, and then we take our prejudices to the grave unless somebody kind of knocks us off our pins in an interesting way. Yeah, so 
All right. So I think it's interesting to think about the erotic thrill that you described, which is kind of, you know, I would say it like a, like a rush of adrenaline, you know, but a, but an erotic thrill out of somebody that you consider you used to consider to be really great, like like Ayn Rand in high school. I remember that mm. reading The Fountainhead. Yeah, but um, it's freaking awesome. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, but you know, so it's interesting. I, I'm I'm sort of saying like there's a difference between somebody taking down somebody that you like, and that's a very sort of complicated kind of thrill that you get because you because it's also some kind of being crushed. You know, in some way. But then there's also the thrill of somebody taking down someone that you don't like. And then you're just sitting there cheering them. Like, I can imagine a lot of high school students listening to that section that you just read about Thoreau saying, I knew it. I knew it didn't make any sense. I knew it had a contradiction in the, in it there, but I was supposed to just love it, you know. And so now here's somebody taking it down. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm and I don't know. I, I think. I forgot what I was going to say. All right, let's see. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think you probably do have students coming to yeah. you all the time saying, yes, I feel as though I found the worm in the apple of Kafka. Here it is, Professor Papoulis. <laughs> this guy is a fraud. And so, I mean, to what standards would you hold them to? Well, yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Uh, you know, uh, so you have to be, t I think as James was saying, you know, you really have to know what you're talking about to really make a good uh, takedown because the standards I might hold them to is you know they don't know what they're talking about you know and 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 they're not really looking they're not really reading closely enough and and you know it, most students I would say that to somebody that I really really loved I don't know if if I could see somebody take down Kafka in a way that you know gave me an erotic thrill that, that I mean I suppose that would be interesting <laughs> well I mean yeah. I I find a well written critical piece of some of anything to be stimulating just it's kind of fun even something well, yeah. that I don't agree with yeah. I'm not sure I like the term takedown really in a way mm -hmm. because I think that if you if <laughs> if you take on somebody like Thoreau and you sort of the, make it make the analysis a much more nuanced and detailed analysis of, okay, this part of him, you know, is this is what you probably know about him. But here are some inconsistencies. And so certainly from an academic point of view, that starts an interesting discussion and makes a class really interesting, I would, I would think. I mean, that's something that to me would make me much more interested than doing some sort of hagiography of, of, of somebody who's thought, okay, this, is, this person is untouchable kind of thing, like having a class celebrating Shakespeare. Well, you can celebrate Shakespeare, but you, there are also some important criticisms that you could make um, and that are being made. And so that's why I found it kind of uh, really stimulating and interesting to read that article because it really got to the heart of whether you um, – like now, for instance, with the internet, we often presented with ways that uh, are it, – it's easy to create an image for somebody to – to uh, you know, somebody is some. All of a sudden, everything about them is perfect. You know, and everything about them, they're they're great at this and great at that, and and it happens so fast that there's no room for that criticism, and that's why I think that maybe if uh, these kind of criticisms were more common and not thought of so much as takedown, but as a natural part of realizing there's a yin and yang here. That's something that teaches people, students especially, that it's really good to criticize. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, there's a uh, – I think it's Billy Collins who – yeah, it is Billy Collins who wrote this much-objected-to poem called Undressing Emily Dickinson. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of in favor of undressing Emily Dickinson or, or anybody, you know, and, and – but – 
But within the kind of context that you're talking about, I'm, it, I'm forever quoting Omar in The Wire uh, who says, if you come at the king, you best not miss. Although it turns out that that's something that Ralph Waldo Emerson said slightly differently to Oliver Wendell Holmes. I found that out getting ready for this. But – Carolyn, I feel like that's the thing that's kind of missing here. Um, I mean, uh, James's point is absolutely right that some kind of middle ground criticism is is better. But you know, what I see now, uh, like I was astonished to find out that Gawker has kind of a literary supplement, which is just <laughs> mind boggling all by itself. And then I, you know, I was boning up on Jonathan Franzen, and I read this. I kind of purported to be a review. The headline was Jonathan Franzen's new novel is a worthless P.O.S. Those words were spelled out. And I thought – and it was just invective with links to other people's invective. And I thought, oh, no, that's not fair. If I'm going to get an erotic thrill from something, it will be because somebody really did undress Emily Dickinson for me in this really interesting way that I would not have thought of doing. Just flaming something to me is, is not interesting, yet it seems to be a popular sport these days. Well, first of all, you guys, erotic to you guys is really <laughs> has a very definition. Well, I'm, <laughs> very the one who start, I'm the one who started this all over. <laughs> I'm confused. If Bruno, Mar- if Bruno Mars says, if you're freaky, then own it. Okay, so I own it. <laughs> but I, I do think that it is, I, I again think it, it's just this Yelp culture where we, um, you know, people kind of, with just the information they have and some, and unfortunately, not going much further than that or just kind of grazing on the top of a subject making wild decisions on how how you see it and how you view it and then sharing it and i i i do think that it is kind of uh like the the new way of in of interpreting it's like the trailer well, you know, thing yeah but but also i think millennials since you're the you're the representative so often say like in class well i don't want to offend anyone and they're so so careful about not wanting to put anyone down. Not, but but maybe they really? all. Well, no, but it seems. <laughs> Have you read like, their Twitter or Facebook? Well, no, but what I was <laughs> going to say it. is no, because that's in public, right? You know, so there's something in in public and in person that's very threatening about being offensive. Whereas on this other Twitter and yik yak and all this thing level, yeah, then millennials then, we then are you, a passive aggressive yeah. people. Right. Right. All right, very quickly, we have to shift gears here. We don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, I did. Uh, I went and see, to see uh, Bridge of Spies last. Last weekend, and it got me thinking about this incredible 29 film of, of Steven Spielberg, some of which is frustrating and annoying, and some of which is not. We don't have a lot of time, but I'd just be interested to know from each one of you what you think is your, the best or your favorite Spielberg movie. And in just a few words, why, Carolyn, you can go first. Uh, or you can pass. No, 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 no. Um, my favorite is Jaws. <laughs> I'm laughing because I felt like maybe you would guess that. I, I just. <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot who I was talking to momentarily. <laughs> um, I, I, I loved, I loved Jaws. I, I wasn't. That's practically your origin story. Now that I think of it. True. <laughs> no, but I, I wasn't even alive when the first one came out. But just seeing that, I remember that one just having a great impact, and it does such a cool job of kind of fusing like horror with action with comedy and I, I just I, I love Jaws Well one of our uh, producers here in something of a film scholar uh, Jonathan McPants said uh, that almost every Spielberg movie is at some point 
too much something. It's too something. And that Jaws never is, that every single shot in Jaws is defensible. Uh, every single scene uh, is, is intrinsic. Uh, and that nothing really completely oversteps the mission of the movie. So uh, you're not alone. But I, I'd forgotten that that's your foundational myth, basically. <laughs> is, is, <laughs> so. Now we know. <laughs> so James, uh, continue. Well, I, I kind of like agree with that about Jaws uh, because I think that ultimately the most comfortable place for Steven Spielberg is a kind of commercial film like Jaws. And I think one of the great things about Jaws is the the, the sort of mythology it created, created around it, like the <clears throat> sensitivity of beachgoers to the – like a child swimming around with a rubber fin on, you know, like could cause thousands of beachgoers to flee to their cars. And and this whole sort of sensitivity to sharks, um, I mean, it's unfortunate for sharks, of course, uh, you know, the image of sharks. But that was the kind of thing that, you know, it seems to fit with him. So many of his other films, I find, um, you know, he starts off with intellectual uh, um, interest in a character, something like uh, Schindler's List, for example, or um, The Minority Report, Artificial Intelligence. They're interesting intellectual journeys that start, but then it's like he loses the thread and um, he takes refuge in a kind of like emotional wooliness kind of thing that, that that the film doesn't really take you anywhere and thus is not memorable. I mean, I liked the performance. I liked uh, the, the, um, the, the, the idea of what was behind Schindler's List, but I think it did a great disservice to truth in terms of actually knowing the character and, and seeing the character as having faults as well as virtues. My, my segue to this <laughs> thing was going to be Leon Weaseltier's uh, review of Schindler's List uh, after I'd seen it and just embraced it as a masterpiece. And Weaseltier at one point says, has no one noticed how self-regarding this movie is? Yeah. And he goes to do it. And it was just a great takedown. I mean, it didn't really that much offset my, my admiration, but it did something. Uh, Irene, uh, real quick. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, I, th- I mean, I You love- can't say Jaws. Not okay. Yeah. No, I was thinking. Gosh, I can't. Rem- I can barely remember it. Maybe it is my favorite. If I if I saw it again, same with Schindler's List. I would say that would, was my favorite. But now I want to see it again. You know, and read the review and think about that. Um, I think there's a lot of un. You know, like I thought Catch Me If You Can. I don't know if it's the best one he made, but mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that movie. I and people that. hardly yeah, ever yeah. talk about that. But I thought it was really good. Yeah, I would throw in Empire of the Sun also as a movie people don't talk about very much, which. I've now watched many times. And it, it does have the McPants problem. It is two several things. It turns into Hogan's Heroes at a certain point. But for all that, it's great. All right. We've got to take a break. We'll come back. I really like Jaws. I like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Steven Spielberg. I really like the Star Wars trailer goes by so fast, I had to watch it three times before I spotted Lincoln Chafee as one of the blocks of granite. Today's show was produced by Colin McEnroe, Betsy Kaplan, and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Amanda Gallagher and Sarah Flaherty. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam Driver. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff sleeping together inside one tauntaun, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On Monday's show, author Colin McCann on his violent encounter in New Haven. And now, back to Colin. All right, so we're back. Uh, it's time to do endorsements. Another idea I stole from Slate Culture Gabfest. Uh, we've got about four minutes, so we can we can each have about a minute here. Go ahead, Irene. 
I guess I, I'm just going to um, endorse the Rosetta Stone method of learning a language because I've been learning Spanish. It's so great for people who have no short-term memory and can't memorize anything. It just does it for you, and you learn like kids learn a language, and it's really good. Is it an app or an online thing? It's, I have the online, the yeah, online yeah, download. Rosetta yeah. Stone. Yeah. I'd like to endorse the Rosetta Stone, too. It's a very – it itself the is Rosetta it's Stone not a bad itself. stone there. All right. Yeah. <laughs> as, as, as blocks of granite go. Uh, all right, James. What would you, would you – we know what you're going to endorse. But well, we, we okay. Hear you Before it. I endorse it, I just want to say thank you, Canada, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that there's hope for getting out of our long political nightmare um, that Canada has actually turned around and uh, looks a little hopeful. Anyway, uh, the big uh, thing at Cine Studio at 1 o'clock on Sunday – we're showing uh, Hamlet, the um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch Hamlet from the Barbican Theatre in London, which is a stunning production with an incredible performance, one o'clock on Sunday. Um, and, and well, we've seen – we should just quickly say, uh, seeing the plays that way at Trinity Sinister is a lot of fun. And this is the quickest to sell out ever production in London, That's I think, right? right? It yep. is like, you yep. know. It's sold out in like a matter of minutes. All right. Carolyn, what have you got? All right. Well, kind of in line with what we were talking about today, I will be reading along with uh, other comedians from CT Improv. We are doing uh, a readings, uh, dramatic readings of Yelp reviews from <laughs> um, restaurants and businesses in Connecticut. So that's coming up in November. You can go um, find it on, online on Yelp or um, you know, I'll be posting about it too. And also, I want to endorse the the uh, show Difficult People on Hulu. If you haven't watched it, it is hilarious. I kind of feel like it is my life. I, I sort of want to look into a lawsuit regarding that. <laughs> um, but it is very funny and a and a great little great little thing to sit in marathon. All right. Uh, very quickly, I, I, I mentioned this earlier this week, but I would like to – first of all, I'll tell you that the Hooker Day Parade uh, is in Hartford at 1 o'clock. It's loads of fun. Tomorrow, 1 p.m., Hooker Day Parade, uh, one of the craziest parades in America uh, and, uh, and loads of fun. Uh, I hope they get a good day for that. Uh, I mentioned this earlier this week, but I would uh, – BBC4 is so good anyway. I mean we try here at Public Radio, but they sort of often do the things that I kind of wish that we could do. Uh, so attention must be paid, BBC4. Four's documentary on Arthur Miller. We just did an Arthur Miller show on Wednesday. This is – it's so good. I mean it's just a wonderful radio documentary. It kind of has everything and the kind of thing that BBC4 does so well. And then finally, uh, not so much Bridge of Spies, although I actually think Bridge of Spies is a very good movie. But I just have to endorse actor Mark Rylance. I mean is there – a more amazing actor working right now. He's this shovel-faced, morose-looking man who, you know, really seems like he has no range whatsoever except that everything he does is completely spellbinding. You know, every twitch of his downturned mouth is like, you know, is a, a three-volume novel. So go see Bridge of Spies just for Mark Rylance uh, and then go see everything else he's ever done. Oh, Star Wars trailer, I love you. I know.